0: Okay, this is week five of the class. Let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have uh, again gathered your people together this Lord's Day to bring you praise. We thank you that it is good for us to give you praise. Not only is it our duty, but it is our delight. So we thank you, Lord. Thank you for the gospel preached Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Sunday School Hour, the opportunity that it is for us to uh, think together, to encourage one another, and to uh, delight in what you have uh, revealed to us. We pray that you'd bless this uh, this class and the other classes meeting here to fill us with hope and with joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so if you have the handout, um, I've passed, they're over there, if you have them. I think we still have a few more left. I've started the recording. I think that's working. So this is week five of our eight-part series, uh, All Things New, An Introduction to Reformed Eschatology. Uh, And you'll see the title of of this week is What in the World is the Kingdom of God? Yes, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the whole point is the question of in the world? What is the relationship of the kingdom of God to this world? Um, so uh, last week, Russell helpfully set up this class by talking about the, the two-age structure of history, this age and the age to come. He was talking about showing this pattern over and over to, to try to help us get a, a grasp on the fact that eschatology is not just dealing with the last little bit right before Jesus returns but that all of scripture all of history is eschatological in the sense that everything is leading up to this consummation what God is going to do in Jesus Christ so Russell set this up by talking about this age and the age to come and he was talking about uh, this this time period this this come this age to come with righteousness and peace so we're going to be thinking about that because when we're looking at scripture, We're going to try to uh, look at the different titles that are used, the different descriptors for this time period. Because throughout the uh, the Old Testament, especially, there are all sorts of uh, titles and words that are used to describe this promised blessing that we're all waiting for, right? Uh, this The age to come is what Russell was talking about. But there also are other scriptures that talk about this time of peace and righteousness flourishing. Uh, the new heavens and new earth is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. We'll read a few passages relating to that. The kingdom of God is a New Testament phrase, uh, and then Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, but this, side, this concept didn't come out of left field. about the kingdom of God, where righteousness dwells and justice is uh, enacted, right? That when Christ came preaching the kingdom of God, there was already an established framework for thought. They said, oh, here he is bringing the kingdom of God. And so uh, this theme of the kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, the one who's going to come, was established and understood even uh, throughout the Old Testament. So what I wanted to do is just read a few uh, passages from the Old Testament where it's describing this time, this this sought-after time of peace and righteousness, that we can begin to see the the breadth of this. There are so many passages that talk about this, um, but we're going to begin to start, before we start talking about the nature of this kingdom, and we're going to be looking at what are these promises? How is it described in Isaiah? So here are a few examples I have from Isaiah. Isaiah 11. uh, You you can turn to this if you want, but I'll just be reading through it. Uh, So this is Isaiah 11, 1 through 12. Listen for some of the themes some of the description, what's going on here, what's the picture that's painted. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand for a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros. From Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea, he will raise a signal to the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So, have you, have you picked up a lot of those images? There's a lot going on there, but there are a lot of similar uh, passages in the Old Testament that talk about this, um, this righteousness, the wolf. This this predation picture, the wolf flying with the lamb, right? Um, The nursing child playing with cobras, because there's no hurting. There's no, uh, they shall not hurt or destroy, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Um, And then there's this gathering that all those, this branch, our Lord Jesus Christ, is gathering uh, his people together from the four corners of the earth. So This is a strong picture that uh, is over and over throughout the Old Testament. Here's another one, very, very similar. Isaiah 65, starting in 17. Listen for a similar theme, similar description. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Lots of very similar imagery, right? So what a sweet picture. What a glorious picture, right? This is, this is the hope. This is the restoration of all things. It's the age to come that we're hoping for, a new creation, new heavens, new earth. There's this picture. So remember, um, there are many other... Places We remember when when Zechariah uh, was prophesying, right? Um, when uh, John was born, John the Baptist was born, and Zechariah prophesized, and he has this long proph- uh, prophecy. Remember how it starts? He's talking about this kingdom, this Davidic kingdom, right? He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So Zechariah knew that there was a Davidic promise, that there's going to be a son of David who comes to save us from our enemies. There's going to be a kingdom that's going to be established. And you remember, where was this, this promise made in the Old Testament? When was this promise, where was this promise given to David? What book, what chapter, or what situation? Ten points. Yeah. <laughs> Second Samuel seven, right? So uh, God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? You look at the phrase uh, son of David in the Gospels, everywhere, everyone's saying, have mercy on a son of David. That was not a neutral claim, right? Son of David, son of David. Um, and so there are many different uh, themes. There are other passages here I have about um, the Ancient of Days, uh the son of man going up to the ancient of days, and all authority being given to him. There's so many different things running throughout uh, the scriptures, seeing the kingdom, seeing this new creation, seeing this, this blessed, glorious age to come. When will it be? Right, That's the question. And so, As Russell explained last week, uh, the age to come, we have this age, the age to come, and what, what Russell was showing us is that in Christ, is particularly through the resurrection, the age to come has broken into this present age, right? And so it's created this tension all of a sudden that wasn't there before, that we now have a sense in which the kingdom is here. But well, you heard those passages. When you look out, when you read the news, does it look like that everywhere? No, there's a not yet. Um, as it says in Hebrews uh, 2, I think it is, um, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't yet see that, right? So, okay, now we got this tension. The kingdom has come. Russell was saying that this age to come is broken into this uh, present age. Um, So, listen to this. Christ, when he came, he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, right? He preached that the kingdom of God had arrived. Here are a few quick examples. You'll see in your uh, handout that there are um, some notes there with some references you can look up later. I'll just read them real quick. You'll be familiar with them. Jesus came preaching. Uh, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's at hand. It's ready. It's right in front of us. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, if you have a pen, uh, Matthew 12, this reference, scratch that out and write 12:22 through 29. I want to add a few verses to either side of what I have listed there for you. Listen to this, because this is now the nature of this kingdom of God. Christ came preaching the kingdom of God. Now we're going to see this discussion about a rival kingdom. Who would have the rival kingdom? Someone. Who would have the rival kingdom that Christ is bringing his kingdom to compete with? Satan, right? Okay, so listen to the way this is described, this, this rivalry. Matthew 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, Jesus. And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Right. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Now here's the real key. Listen to this. Jesus says to them, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. Catch that? Rivalry, right? These two kingdoms, and Christ is saying, I'm casting out demons. Clearly, this isn't by the power of Satan. That's going to fall. But if, if what I'm doing is from the spirit of God, then know this. I am the son of David. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he describes it this way. He says, if there's a strong man and someone's going to break in and plunder him, rob him, right? You can't just do that by going in and slipping a few things away. You have to break the door down, tie the guy up, and then you can plunder his goods. That's how Jesus characterizes his ministry, that he's tying up Satan, restraining his uh, power against him, and Jesus is casting out, showing his authority, right? So this is the way that Jesus sets up his, his description of how the kingdom functions in his ministry. He also uh, taught his disciples to preach the same message. In Luke 9, he said, uh, it says, "He called the twelve together." And gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In Acts, this is what they preached the kingdom of God. Philip preached the kingdom of God and they believed. Then you remember Paul. Where did Paul end his ministry? Where was he? On the beach, being picked up. In Rome? What was he doing in Rome? Prison, right? Exactly. So he's he's uh, under house arrest. Paul's there. Listen to this description, what he was doing, how he was spending his time there. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses, and from the prophets, that was his message, right? He was explaining from Moses and the prophets, Jesus and the kingdom of God. This is the message: kingdom of the gospel. Um, so, as we mentioned, though Hebrews two, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, right? It's not fully here. We know that this this concept that the, the fact that the age to come is broken in doesn't mean so. That's it. It's all done right? It, there's this tension now built in. And we, we know also that in 1 Corinthians 15, remember that resurrection chapter we referred to, 1 Corinthians 15? It says, it's talking about after the resurrection, this time to come, and it says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So it's talking about this, this, this final, after the resurrection, it's described this time as the kingdom of God. Not yet. See? So it's at hand, it's present. Christ brought the kingdom, but there's this after the resurrection inheriting of the kingdom. So there's an already not yet tension built here. So this is uh, sort of standard uh, Reformation, or Reformed theologian thinking. This is the way people think. Um, this is pretty clear in the scriptures, I think. It's pretty easy to, to show this from the scriptures. So our question today is um, this age to come, um, this kingdom of God, this new creation, this glorious time. What do reformed folks understand or expect about the kingdom of God, this overlap in this age? As I put it, what in the world is the kingdom of God? How does that work out? What does that look like? Right. If it's not fully there. And what sense is it here? And what can we expect in life? So, if you're familiar uh, with these questions, or you've thought about them before, or heard people talk about it, um, this is uh, commonly known as the millennial question, the millennium. Um, the, who here is familiar with that term? I, I just don't even know that millennium is okay. So, um, what people will commonly do. I, I want to take a different approach to this question, uh, maybe than you're you're used to. You've heard before. Commonly, what will happen is people will say, Well, there are three views premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, and then they'll define them, and then they'll say pros and cons, and then the class runs out of time, and that's it. And we go, Well, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, and that is a fact, but I want to just approach it from a different angle because uh, if you never heard the phrase premillennialism before, what does that even mean? You know, this, this theological word or postmillennialism or amillennialism, this it seems to not only is it, does it seem hard to get your mind around, but even most of, most theologians don't like these, these terms for their own system or other systems, right? Because they're actually not that descriptive of what the actual question is. Um, they only talk about a, a small piece of it. And so, um, what we want to, uh, think about today is what are the actual questions we're asking? We don't have weeks and weeks to talk about this subject, which it would take to unpack all of the implications. We're going to say, okay, our focus is going to be, what are the core questions? Premillennialism, millennialism post-millennialism, amillennialism. What's that? What are we actually even talking about here? And what we're talking about, the, the question of the millennium concerns two things, the nature and the timing of the kingdom of God the nature and the timing of the kingdom of God. So if you keep that in mind, you'll be able to keep your bearings as as we're thinking about these questions. And I'm going to explain that a little bit. Throughout um, the church, um, when we're thinking about these categories, I said it's common for people today to say there are three pre, post, and off. Uh, But historically, that's a relatively new thing to have three categories for thinking about it for a long, 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 long time, up until the middle of the 20th century, there were only two categories that people thought in. They thought in terms of the timing question. Remember I said it's the nature or the character of it and the timing or the chronology. So for a long time, so much of the distinction was completely about, was solely focused on the timing question, meaning pre or post. That was the nature of the discussion that was happening. So Pre is Christ is returning before the millennium. Okay? I know. We'll get to it. What, what's the millennium, right? So premillennialism just means Christ yeah. is, would be coming before the millennium. and post would just mean, in that instance historically, it would just mean that Christ is coming after the millennium. Okay. Fair enough. So what's this millennium? What is this question? Here's, I think... I'll, I'll read the, the passage, um, but I think this is where the terms get confusing and unhelpful. Because I was just explaining that the questions we're actually talking about are the nature and timing of the kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about. What does the age to come in this age broken in look like? What does it look like? So the, the phrase millennium, premillennialism, who knows where that comes from? Why do people, why do theologians? use the word millennium to talk about that? You know what passage? Exactly, yeah, Revelation 20. And it's because in Revelation 20, a little heads up, the last week we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, thinking about how do we even understand this book. Obviously, it's a hard book to be in the 21st century, have no background knowledge, jump in and make sense of it. There's a lot going on there. Um, So uh, there's this, it's full of vivid, powerful imagery that is not immediately understandable, at least to me, and I've heard from a lot of other people too. So there's this millennium passage, this section in Revelation 20 that talks about the thousand years, okay? So i want to read it um, because it's important just to understand that, but I want us to see that when we're using the phrases, premillennialism uh, pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, tying it to this passage, kind of missing the questions. The questions are are focused on the nature of Christ's kingdom in this world before he comes back. Actually before I read this, are there any questions or comments? Uh, anything I said? Yep. Og It's a good question I think what what I would say is it's it's the nature of this already not yet that the kingdom is here but not fully so okay and in what sense is it here what are we to expect what how do we see this playing out you know um some people talk about an overrealized eschatology or something you you're taking too much you're saying all of that stuff for now the kingdom is here it's like well you're still going to die there's still you know people okay so we're not all the way there yet you're not resurrected this is the resurrection body right that, yeah. so i think i think the answer is the reason that there's a difference of understanding in this is we're trying to figure out what exactly is the nature of this overlap where are we right now how what are our expectations what ought they to be? yep mm mm-hmm. mhm- no. yeah so you're saying uh, uh if I understand you right, you're saying that um how would it be you know, talk with a Christian who denies that the kingdom is in any sense present right now. Um, I think the easiest thing is to, you know, with joy say, Brother, look at this, and then show in scriptures how Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling, he is reigning. The gospel is going. Um so there's there's that. I think the scriptures are pretty clear about that Christ, that the kingdom is in at least in some sense, um already sense. So, okay. Let me just read this passage real quick uh, from Revelation twenty. Just listen to this this imagery that John, this vision. You know, you remember think about Ezekiel, right? The wheels and the wings, the eyes. Okay, John is seeing a vision, right? So here's the vision. So it's important that you pay attention to the visuals. Picture this. Try to understand what the picture is saying. Okay. So John writes this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first rex- resurrection. Over, the second, over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. So that's the millennium, the thousand years reference in, in this vision. So Christ is reigning. He's the, He's got the key. He comes up to Satan. He locks him up, this, this uh, dragon, right? locks him up with a chain, throws him in a pit so that he can no longer deceive the nation, and he and his followers reign for a thousand years. That's the vision, okay? So the question is, what exactly is that referring to? We talked about the kingdom to come, this case overlapping. This particular question, what is that a reference to? And that's where all those names get stuck on. Well, that's a reference to this time period or this, they're they're shifting around. So rather than get bogged down in the, the word millennium, think about that, I want us to think about the actual questions, the nature and timing of the kingdom. So fortunately, um, we simplified our task. I was talking with Russell about this because um we the goal of this class is to talk about reformed theology. What do reformed theologians talk about or think about eschatology? Um and while well, our denomination would uh, ordain a man who's premillennial, um, not dispensational, but premillennial, the the fact is uh, premillennialism is very, very, very rare in the Reformed world, in the confessionally Reformed, in you know, Presbyterian world, it's very, very rare. There are a small handful of people who have or do hold it, but by and large, I would think it's fair to say almost everybody is either... What is today called post or all millennial? So, for the sake of time, um, I'm noting that that there are a handful of exceptions, but we're going to focus our time on uh, the differences between the post and all millennial views. Okay, so that helps us because I just said <laughs> the, the questions are about the nature and the timing of the kingdom of God. Right. So if if, if we understand that. Um, Remember before I said that there were historically two views, pre and post? Where'd this all-millennial piece come from? Where'd that come from, right? And where this came from was in the middle of the 20th century, particularly among Reformed theologians, there was some back-and-forth debate going on about the nature of the kingdom. This very question we're talking about right now, the nature of what does it mean that the kingdom of God is already in a sense? Right. So among these at the time post-millennialists, if you look at a a 1930s, you know, book that's they'll only talk about two views, pre and post-millennial. Well, in the middle of the 20th century, all of these post-millennialists started debating about the the nature of this. How what does this look like? And out of that grew sort of a divergence in two different thoughts. So this one camp. Uh, realized, they realized that they were kind of talking about, they're emphasizing two different things. So that's why today we have three different, we have um, post and on millennial. So let's talk about that because that focuses our question not so much on the timing. We're not here gonna uh, talk about, you know, premillennialism versus this other uh, collection of views. We're gonna be focusing our questions on the nature of the kingdom of God it's already sensed. That makes sense. Um, yeah. so there may be a few things in your notes, um, some references to premillennialism. But if you have questions about the premillennialism question, First Corinthians fifteen, I think I'm sure I have the reference there. Uh, Twenty through twenty-six lays out a chronology, um, and also premillennialism. Uh, there, I think that's the Most helpful passage to the reason that a lot of Reformed theologians end up not adopting premillennialism. Okay, so let's think about this. So we'll start this way where again, we're acknowledging, we're remembering that uh, all Reformed theologians realize that we're not in the consummate, that the kingdom is not fully here, that the new heavens, new earth is not fully here, that this is not completely only the age to come. Everybody knows that. Uh, but the, the the breaking in uh, is the question. So there are a series of questions I have here. These questions, I think, kind of get to the heart of what we're, what we're asking or thinking about today, what the nature of these discussions revolve around. Here are the, the three questions I have. What we know that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling in all authority, The question is, what effect does Christ's heavenly reign have on earth? Second question, what do we pray for when we're right now in that time period praying, thy kingdom come? What what specifically are we asking for? What should be our expectation for the advance of the kingdom of God before Christ's return? I.e., what is the scope of the work of redemption before Christ's return. Because remember, we talked about a few weeks ago, when Christ returns, what happens? When he comes, what immediately happens? The, yeah, well, yeah, the resurrection and the, the judgment, right? The new heavens, new earth, right? So when when Christ comes back, there's this cataclysmic shift on this unfolding of all these things, right? So, um, so the question then is, what should be our expect, expectations about the advance of the kingdom before that? What, what's going to happen to, say, the Great Commission? You know, is it going to be successful? Is it going to, you know, what's the, what's going to happen with that before Christ comes? That's really the fundamental question. That's really the fundamental uh, kind of dividing point in the Reformed world, thinking about the nature of the kingdom here. Um, so what I want to do with this, um, you can imagine... You can imagine that there are so many scriptures to look at. And so what I what I want to do with this instead is I want to give, I want to describe two these two contrasting visions, right? These two ways of thinking about it or um, these emphases um, that that represent sort of the, the opposite ends of the spectrum in this discussion. So I'm not quoting any particular theology. I'm not saying, I'm not secretly referring to one person and some other person sort of giving this, I'm saying, this is what the reform people say, and we're identifying that there are kind of two uh, um, ways of emphasizing truths here, or there are two emphases that are uh, at polar opposite ends. So I'm going to paint those two polar opposite ends, not so that you can find which one of those goes in each bucket, which theologian fits this one, and which theologian fits that one. In reality, a lot of people find themselves saying, amen, to a lot of what's said in both. Um, So that's where I think it gets confusing to to think about it that way. So what I want to do is I want to um, uh, paint these two pictures, describe these two visions, and you'll hear that I have uh, many, a a lot of the language I got from this is referring to scriptural concepts or scriptural phrases to try to get at that because I can't give you a list of hundreds of verses or something. So the other thing to remember with this is the fundamental question is about between Christ's resurrection and when he comes back. So the whole question is big picture, right? And you remember the first week we talked about the, the sort of danger of newspaper exegesis. Remember that where, where a lot of people have gone astray in whichever direction is they're looking at the thing right in front of them and they're saying, well, clearly, this is it, or clearly, Christ is going to be here tomorrow. Because look at all this, right? So that there's a danger in looking just at what's right in front of you. But that's not the question, right? When you're when you're going on a journey, it's never a straight line. We all know that there are ups and downs. We just heard a sermon preached about the ups and downs, right? Um, so the, that's not the question. Will you experience ups or downs? The question is. Between the resurrection and the second coming, what ought a Christian to expect? Okay. Okay. So here's the first vision. Again, this is not anyone in particular. It's sort of a a hodgepodge of different thoughts to try to present a a polar end of the thought. The first vision goes like this. Christ reigns in heaven and over his church. Uh, Life on this earth is fundamentally, meaning fundamentally at core, essentially one of wilderness wandering. And suffering is an essential mark, meaning it must be there. Suffering is an essential mark of the Christian life. And we should not expect good to overshadow evil before Christ returns. We have no way of knowing how far the gospel will affect change in the world before Christ comes. Um, This is because Satan's work will always remain strong alongside the growth of the kingdom of Christ, parallel track. And so the church's work is to preach the gospel of salvation to lost sinners because it's unwise to stake one's hopes in this present life. Christ's temporary restraint of Satan will be relinquished at the end of human history, and this will usher in Uh, suffering for the church right before Christ comes. Uh, Believers, therefore, wait for their deliverance at Christ's second coming, in which all the dead will be raised, the world will be judged, and all will inherit their eternal portion. Kind of a lot, not a lot, but I'm trying to paint a picture. So if you missed tidbits, that's okay. The the picture is fundamentally wilderness wandering, that life, is basically that the, the kingdom of God is basically going to be like wilderness wandering, and we won't be inheriting the land until Christ comes, right? That's the, that's the picture. Um, some, do you recognize that? Have you heard that kind of emphasis? So, um, some of the critiques, you know, so we're talking about two different sides. One side, the critique against that is someone would say, it doesn't sound like a very uh, gospel powered sort of vision, right? So one of the critiques from the other side is saying, but the gospel is powerful. It changes people, right? Um, they also would fear that, um, that some of the critiques that that kind of vision seems like it would at least logically sort of undermine vision, a uh, uh, vision for missions, right? Sort of like we're just waiting to get out of here. Dispensationalism is um, this is not a dispensational vision, but dispensationalism especially uh, kind of has a, a dour vision. We're just kind of waiting. Um but I think one of the other critiques that comes is it's, they would say that uh, this vision doesn't adequately, you know, ad- acknowledge that Christ is Lord, that His kingdom is actually uh, powerful, and so it's characterized as being uh, overly pessimistic, right? And so because we don't really know, it's always going to be rough, really rough, Okay. So here's the second vision. <clears throat> second vision goes like this. It's different. At the right hand of the Father, Christ reigns over heaven and earth, and throughout the generations is progressively spreading his kingdom over the earth. He, Christ accomplishes this by empowering his church to preach the gospel by the power of the Spirit. So he commissioned his church to disciple the nations because his father gave him all authority. This heralding of the king is the work of the church. She should, therefore, go to every corner of the earth, confident of the success of the mission. Christ has bound Satan, and when the church beats down the doors of hell to rescue sinners, the gates will not be able to withstand. Ultimately, therefore, in the scope, ultimately, the Great Commission will succeed. One day, all the nations will honor Jesus Christ. The world will be saved and the gospel's influence will permeate even to the level of society. The gospel will transform cultures from service to idols to honoring the living God. And at the close of history, Satan's restraint will be loosed and he will incite a rebellion before Jesus Christ returns bodily. At that time, just like the first few, the dead will be resurrected, the judgment books will be opened, and all people will enter their eternal destiny. So, what would the first view say about that? They would say overly optimistic, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, uh, they would say, "Look at all the suffering. Look at all this uh, tension. Look at all the violence." Mm-hmm. Right? Overly optimistic. Um, a common concern that's that's raised by this first view about the second is that they fear that it could be triumphalistic. Um, I was—I'd learned that it's not a word. It can be a triumphalist, but triumphalistic, but it is. Um, and, it's, and it's this idea that it's sort of going out and conquering and saying, we're gonna take and take and take and sort of self-empowered sort of things. So there's a fear about that. Um, and in particularly with the use of uh, secular means to accomplish this, the Christianizing of the nations so using politics to try to leverage, to try to get the gospel into places, that's a, a concern. Um, and so it's criticized for placing too much stock in this world, saying, you guys are trying to over-realize the, the presence of the kingdom here. So do you, you recognize any of that? Have you heard any of that? Have you, you heard that kind of thing before? Yep. uh Um, uh, sure. I think. Or I do I do and um, you know, also, yeah, like a very narrow boat, look you know, at like a very go back and mm-hmm. see, uh, yeah Sure, um, but Yeah. what sure right <laughs> way yeah yeah um yeah I, I think you're right that um so it's hard because remember how i, how I said all millennial and post millennial, that particular distinction didn't exist until the 1960s or whatever it was, the middle of 2017. Okay, so. Okay, um, so whatever the particular, I mean, it might be that time, but before that, it was just you know, kind of this pre and post thought. So it's tricky when we're thinking, okay, well, if John Calvin was in here, what side was he on? Well, he, he lived before that distinction was made. So what we have to do is, not that we can't get information, but we can't just look under his systematic theology and then you can say, I'm this one, right? We have to go, okay. So that's why I think it's helpful to think about the nature of the actual question. What did Calvin say about his prospect of uh, the gospel before Christ comes? Those kinds of questions. Okay. okay. Uh, Sure. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what's interesting about it too is so. Just to, I forgot to answer. Yes, I think post millennialism kind of a mainstream thought for a long time in the 19th century. Um, And currently, like say in the OP, um, just to take one example, in the reformed world, amillennialism definitely has the majority position right now. Uh, Postmillennialism after that, I have no idea what the percentage is, um, but premillennialism pretty rare, I would say. Um, But what's interesting about it is you're right that it's anachronistic to kind of take these categories and then try to put them back on people. We can learn things, can't just immediately assume that that the, that they had the same categories, right? If if I you know I would be interested to hear, to, for me to read these two visions, and Calvin might be like, yeah, I know. So as, all of that is what I believe. <laughs> okay, then help me out. Yep. Yes. <laughs> And the of and of yeah um sure yeah thank you, you. yeah <laughs> Yeah, thank you for that clarification. Yeah, it's so hard. I mean, it's interesting. Even looking, I was reading this, this thesis about the Puritans interpretation of the new heavens, new earth prophecy. I just way oversimplify. I mean, it's all over the place. It's, it's so complicated. Obviously, I have to do a lot, but you're right that, um, there's, um, what I presented was sort of the kind of historic post millennial view that it's the preaching of the gospel, the success of the Great Commission sort of thing. Um, and yes, there are all sorts of permutations that happen. So people who are leaning really hard on you know, secular politics, whatever, to institutionalize it. So yes, um, for sure. Um, and also I will say, I do have uh, at the end of your notes, I think I included it, a list of two different two different lists on millennialists and post-millennialists. Um, and so that can be for future reference, some of those books, um, I will just point out if I have a few descriptions in some of those books. Um, at the top of the all list is Kim Riddlebarger's uh, A Case for All Millennialism. That's a good intro book. It's not super deep, but it's a good intro book. Anthony Hokum's book, The Bible in the Future, really changed um, the way people talked about all millennialism um, in a very helpful way, emphasizing the earthiness. So you see, Isaiah 65 and those the, sort of the earthiness of all of that mm-hmm. is for the eternal state. Um, so that was different and helpful, and a lot of people have been influenced. Uh, I'll just point out those two. And then on the postmillennialist list, that's hard to say, um, Keith Matheson from Ligonier Ministries, um, he has a very helpful introduction book called Postmillennialism Eschatology of Hope. Um, and then I also wanted to point out on the list, B.B. B. Warfield. Um, do you know who B.B. Warfield was? Um, so Warfield wrote an article. If I would say this, if there's a dispensational, um, when I came out of it, I assumed that the number in heaven would be like 15, right? Like most people are going to be damned. I don't know why, but that was the background I came from. So for me, that question of uh, is Christ really going to Redeem so many people. Uh, so B.B. Warfield wrote an article on that question. Are they few that be saved? Um, and you can look that up online in B.B. Warfield's. So if you feel like that seems far fetched, Warfield uh, tackles that particular question. So those are, the, those are lists of some representative theologians on those views. Um, but what I want to spend the last few minutes talking about is just, as I said, you know, I don't know, uh, if, if any given theologian were going to be here, they might say amen to 95% of both of those views and say, yeah, these are not mutually exclusive. Many of these comments, many of them. Of course, uh, as we learned that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So when persecution happens, it spreads. So evil mm-hmm. is a means of spreading, right? That's sort of a, a way to see these things working together. Um, so. But I think the real difference is just this this uh, conception of uh, will Christ return, as B.B. Warfield put it, uh, will Christ return to a saved earth? Meaning, what do we expect about the, the prospects of the Great Commission? Um, will it kind of come up and then plateau? Will it to, or do we just not even know at all? Or do we really envision with scriptural warrant that the nations, that, that the gospel will go to every corner of the earth and then Christ will come. So that's the that's the fundamental question. Um, but I, I do think most everybody would agree um, that Christ is reigning over the earth now and that he spreads his kingdom by empowering his church to preach the gospel. I think everybody in this world would say amen to that. Um, but they also see that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, Right. And they also, I think, would agree that uh, although our ultimate hope, of course, is for Christ to restore all things in eternity, I think they all would say, well, where the gospel takes root, it actually has a palpable impact. Like, the gospel does good. You now, when you have a place that's rooted in the scripture, that's a place where people rooted deep in righteousness and truth and goodness, fruit is manifested. And so I think everybody would say, well, yes, that is true, right? Um, so that's, I uh, also included here at the end, um, from the uh, larger catechism, question 191. What do we pray for when we, uh, uh, pray thy kingdom come? And if you look at that list, it's quite interesting. Because I don't know what you think about when you're, when we pray that Lord's Day by Lord's Day, but our confession says this. I'll just read it to, to close. In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances purged from corruption, countenance, and maintained by the civil magistrate, that the ordinances of, of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins and the confirming, comforting, and building up of those that are already converted, that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever and that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce to the end. So do you see how that so helpfully brings these visions together? That much of this is not actually mutually A lot of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think so. I think what I see is that it's bringing these things together. Um, so, you can make arguments about whether that's, you know, leading one way or the other. But at the, the writing of this, there are a lot of different represented. So I do think that this is a pretty uh, fair summary of what we expect when we pray So um So this is not just interesting and curious and, you know, cool for parlor tricks, and you can show people your knowledge. Um, this is for living. So if you think about this, if we we have a vision for what is Christ doing at the right hand of the Father? And what is he commissioned me to do? And what am I to expect, right? We know what to expect because we just heard a sermon about what to expect. To expect trouble, to expect help, right? To expect justice and mercy, right? So we, have that, we are to have expectations about how then we shall live. Um, and so these questions are not merely theoretical. They're not merely just curiosities, but they are aimed at Christian living. They are aimed at uh, motivating, uh, walking in in Christ's ways and glorifying. And like almost dead on One more comment then. No And I, think, I think that's a great place no. to, to leave this discussion. Too. I will say, even in the, just to emphasize, it is not a good hermeneutic to go read the newspaper to see what to believe about the future. <laughs> it's not a good hermeneutic. It's failed over and over and over. What we have to do to answer the questions about what's going to happen in this world, what in the world is the kingdom of God, what is Christ doing, there's only one place that we can get those answers. We can't look at what happened last week or you know what happened last year or what set up to happen next year in our country. This is a worldwide, uh, well, you know, full, you know uh, this thousand years, this time period that we have to think about. So, the scripture is our authority. <laughs> Yeah, no is the answer. Just because this series is focused on reformed eschatology, dispensationalism is not reformed, and premillennialism, the version that is, that can work with a reform a confessionally reformed division, is so rare that we don't have enough time to say how these folks slice that. Okay, Russell had something. Uh um. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly thank you the, the modern missions movement was a post-millennial vision send the gospel to the ends of the earth and somehow it's like wait all the dispensationalists are carrying it forward I'm like no i mean amen that's great but that should be a spurring us on to say okay Let's claim Christ. Let's, our father we thank you for your word thank you that it is true and sure and that we can stand upon it we thank you for the uh, great and precious promises that you have given to us in your scriptures pray Lord that we would be people who rejoice uh, as one who finds great spoil that when we look to your word we do it not with uh, only curiosity in our hearts but that we would do it with love for you We would desire to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth we pray, Lord, that you bless us this day, that we would be uh, full hearted, full of rejoicing, and that we would be resting in you, our maker and our sister. Thank you for these things. We pray them in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.